This is Joel James, and you're listening to one. We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is all in the beginning. Good morning, Rochester. You're tuned in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. My name is Jason Taylor, host of Evidence of Design, and I'm joined live in WXIR's studios by my good friend and co-host, Matt Treadwell. Hey. This is the 152nd episode of Evidence of Design. It is Saturday, August 21st, 2021. We're happy to be here. Hope you are all staying dry out there in Rochester. It's been hot and very, very humid, Matt. Not a huge fan of the humidity thing, but hey, I guess it's pretty normal for these times of years, and I guess uh, this time of year, and I guess it's only going to get more, uh, well, interesting, shall we say, the weather as the years go on, what with climate change. I love it. I personally sabotaged my own air conditioning last night because I want to experience the full blast of the weather can you like uh, prepare your body to do better in certain climates is that actually a thing we'll find out yeah i i I fear people say that where you can sort of become more attuned to you know humid weather dry weather cold weather by just sort of living in it and i guess that makes sense given that humans are particularly adaptable creatures us squirrely beings that we are that we can kind of make things work but I don't know, man. I don't really do too well in the humidity, but some people some people love that stuff. But anyways, we're here on Evidence of Design to talk about a little more serious things, although, of course, climate change is quite serious. We're talking today about the war and withdrawal of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Why does that connect to our show? Well, our show, Evidence of Design, is all about critiquing income and wealth inequality. We think there is way too much inequality in society, particularly economic inequality. And that comes from policies from our government, from the business community, even from the nonprofit sector as well, that creates and accentuates economic inequality. The top 1% of people in this country, the top 10% of people in this country control vast sums, the vast majorities of both income and wealth. The bottom 20% of people, the bottom even half of people in American society, essentially have no wealth and comparably low income. This is not an accident. It's not because those people are lazy and somehow those at the top are, are genius hard workers. No, it's capitalism, folks. Capitalism done wrong. And we can make capitalism do better, if not another economic system as well. So that's what we do here on Evidence of Design. We critique economic inequality, investigate its causes, and propose new ways our society could be structured for the benefit of everyone. 
How does Afghanistan play into this? Well, we shall see. The war, of course, has so many costs, both in human lives and opportunity costs of things that could have been, perhaps should have been, and, of course, monetary costs. It's expected the U.S. has spent more than $2.2 trillion on the war. That is a vast sum, so incomprehensibly large, right? We, Our human brain just can't sort of figure out how much is $2.2 trillion of anything, let alone money, something as amorphous as money. To break that down, that's $11 million an hour. $11 million an hour. Think about how much you might make an hour. Uh, probably not $11 million. So a lot of money has been spent in the war in Afghanistan, and a lot of that money probably could be spent, um, you know, on universal health care, roads, bridges here, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get into that and more. So on today's show, we'll be talking about the origins of the war in Afghanistan, the costs of the war, and looking at what perhaps could have or should have and where we go from here. We'd love to hear from you throughout the hour. This is what Grassroots Community Radio is all about. Give us a call, 585-219-8889. Again, 585-219-8889. You can also stay in touch with us at our social media handles, Radio EOD, that's on Facebook and Twitter, Radio EOD. We'll be right back to jump into talking about the war in Afghanistan after a short break. Hang on. Theme from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence by Ryuichi Sakamoto. Sounds a lot like Blade Runner to me, but you're tuned into Evidence of Design, folks, on 100.9 FM, WXIR in Rochester. Let's talk about the war in Afghanistan. Of course, this week, dramatic developments with the Taliban retaking control of Kabul and effectively the rest of the country in Afghanistan. This was not anticipated, supposedly, by our intelligence community and the Pentagon. Well, it was anticipated. That not it would happen eventually. Right. But just not with the speed that it happened. Right. So U.S. troops were supposed to be all out of Afghanistan by September 11th, of course, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And U.S. troops were supposed to be out in a few weeks, 100%. So it seems like most U.S. troops were already out of the country. And it seems like, from what we were told from the government, intelligence community again, and the Pentagon, that the Taliban would make gains in Afghanistan once U.S. troops were out. The Taliban were already making gains this year in the past couple years, retaking control of territory, particularly rural villages, smaller places on the peripheries of large urban centers in the country. But they started to make rapid gains over the past two months. The intelligence community in the Pentagon again projected that they would turn into a civil war, a bloody conflict, and the Taliban might retake Kabul if the Afghan security forces fail in three to 12 months following U.S. troop withdrawals. So that would bring us down to, you know, this December into next year. Of course, uh, we're all aware now that those estimates were wrong because the Taliban has retaken control of Afghanistan with startling speed, and now they proclaim themselves to be in control in Afghanistan. That, of course, doesn't look too great for the United States, having spent 20 years in the country and 
we didn't go to Afghanistan to overthrow the Taliban, at least not nominally so, but the Taliban were in control in Afghanistan when we invaded the country. We threw, uh, we overthrew their government within a month or so of the war, and now they're back in control the moment the U.S. leaves. Yeah, well, we spent 20 years trying to accomplish. They uh, overthrew in a matter of weeks. Right, 20 years trying to build up the Afghan security force, trying to make sure that Afghans could govern their own country, could have their own governments, could have, you know, protect themselves, all, all ostensibly so, of course. Supposedly that's what we were doing. Right, supposedly that's what we were doing. And so, of course, President Biden is getting tons of flack from this, from the left, Matt, and the right, from the conservative media, from the liberal media, the Biden administration under fire for chaos in Afghanistan. Those are the headlines, indeed, looking at, of course, everyone's favorite news source, news in quotes, Fox News right now. The, I, I've been looking at the headlines the past week. They're, they're absolutely hilarious. Here's the headline, Kabul chaos, reign of terror. Taliban's ultimate taunt. You know, it's just this endless stream of like uh, these, these memes almost of, of uh, the Biden administration losing in Afghanistan, which is, which is hilarious because um, the, the U.S. lost the war technically, you know, 19 and a half years ago <laughs> and under all the administrations that have governed it, in, our, in my opinion, at least. I just love the idea of all the people who read, watch and follow Fox News uh, tearing their hairs out tearing their hair out over this uh tragedy that uh biden has brought on over a country that they probably forgot existed up until two weeks ago right because the whole point of the war in afghanistan is that uh pardon me veterans of the war and those familiar with them but the american people didn't care about the war Right. They that don't is, think about it. They don't have to think about it. They don't. You don't have to think about it. And that is absolutely fair to say. The American people did not care about the war in Afghanistan. Not even Congress perhaps cared because we'll talk about that in the wars in Vietnam and other wars. Congress had multiple repeated, he you, know, you know, Congress didn't even declare war. It wasn't even officially declared war, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Congress didn't even officially declare war, which is their constitutional duty to do so. It was just a president declaration because Congress has ceded the authority that it has to actually declare and, over, and have oversight on wars. And so, you know, in previous wars in Vietnam, uh, Congress had multiple repeated meetings, public hearings on what are the costs of the war, how are we doing in the war, so on and so forth. It's not that those things didn't exist, but they were certainly not as public and as often as they used to be. And so the American people weren't getting any sort of information on, on the progress in the war and the costs of the war. We'll talk, too, about how all essentially all of the money used to fight the war in Afghanistan, the $2.2 trillion, is funded on debt in past U.S. wars to fund wars we would raise taxes. And so the American people would feel the cost of the war because our taxes were higher, because we had to pay more money to, to fund our troops there and to fund the roads, bridges, schools, hospitals being built overseas. The war in Afghanistan, none of that had to happen. It was a blank check with the executive branch to fight an endless war on terror. And therefore, the American people didn't have to care about Afghanistan, about Iraq. And now all of a sudden, everybody cares, of course, because... We look like we lost, Matt. The Biden administration looks like we lost. We'll get into that and more, of course, as we talk about it. the war in Afghanistan and withdrawal on evidence of design on 100.9 FM WXIR.
Let's talk about the origins of the war in Afghanistan because, Matt, this is a 20-year war. A quarter, a full quarter of the U.S. population now was born after 9-11. This war is older than I am. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Not quite. I remember, um, I remember when this happened. It was one of my first sort of not like sort of awareness about politics when I was younger I remember being scared you know I'm not sure I was afraid of 9-11 that was sort of a too distant thing like okay a few I don't mean to be pejorative here but you know okay buildings fell down in New York City right I, I didn't feel sort of direct fear from that what I felt fear about was like the U.S. going to war wow what does that mean you know you read it in books tvs movies articles um well as a kid you, you know you see it through media and so going to war is a scary thing and so I remember seeing President Bush on TV. I remember him sort of making demands to people in the Middle East. You know, I didn't know who they were or where these countries were. And I, I remember feeling scared. That's my memory when I was, you know, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years old. A full quarter of the U.S. population, though, were now born after 9-11. They have no memory, of course, of the, these, uh, the, the invasion of Iraq or Afghanistan or of even 9-11. And so that's why let's go into a brief history of why the U.S. ended up in Afghanistan. Starting, of course, you know, we'll start in the 1900s, just the briefest of reminders that essentially all of Africa, the Middle East, and even parts of Asia in the 20th century, meaning the 1900s, were under colonial rule by European powers. And so Afghanistan was under British rule up until the end of World War I. So why are we saying this is just a reminder that most countries in the world, literally most, were not their own free sovereign countries in modern times. They were under control by European colonists. And that makes it so that has a lot of implications for how countries develop in terms of national identity, in terms of access to their own resources, in terms of, you know, the furthering of their own culture. It, it, it perhaps makes it harder for that country to develop into something that's a successful human body, right? Because they're under subjugation by a colonial power, which Afghanistan was under British rule until after World War I. It's not only Afghanistan's colonial rule that we have to keep in our mind because the British also ruled in India until the end of World War II. That has profound implications because when the British left India, it formed the modern countries today of Pakistan, which is predominantly Muslim, and India, which is predominantly Hindu. And so for those just needing a reminder about geography in the Middle East, Afghanistan is bordered on the west by Iran and is bordered on the east by Pakistan. And so once Pakistan was created, there were differences in ideas and culture about, you know, how Islam should be followed and practiced and, and, and more complicated things than we have time to go into or even my knowledge here. But long story short, Afghanistan had lots of conflicts with Pakistan following uh, and even during, but, you know, especially following the British withdrawal from that country. And therefore, again, colonialism has fallout in countries in terms of how they develop. We see that fallout continue today in Israel and Palestine because the British withdrew and just made, you know, these sort of arbitrary rules. So too did the British withdraw in India and create Pakistan and, and have the conflicts that we have today. And of course, Pakistan is a very important player in the so-called war on terror. 
because they that's where Osama bin Laden was when he was killed and Pakistan has had you know US military bases there and also uh, Pakistan has also supposedly harbored terrorists and supported terrorism around the world it's a very dicey thing there we see it also in African countries where the sort of modern borders of these countries is based on the territories that were when they were uh, territories controlled by European powers and when uh, these European countries first carved up these territories these countries they didn't really pay any attention to like the various uh, ethnic and, and cultural differences between these territories and what ended up happening was after they left these borders were still solidified but the the people inside them you know were very different from one another, and it le- and it's led to many regional conflicts, such as the Rwandan genocide. Right, and it's not it's not that oh these these backwater third world right these 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 terrible names. It's not like these backwater third world so called countries can't govern themselves, and they need their European overlords. We have differences in America too, if you haven't noticed. And indeed, America has fought a civil war. The United Kingdom has fought a civil war. So. It is uh, perhaps safe to say normal for people to have disagreements <laughs> within countries and how they best be governed. The problem is when you're governed by a colonial power, oftentimes those differences have no way to sort of metastasize out. There's no way to sort of solve them because you're governed by the colonial overlord. What they say is what goes. And therefore, the, sor- the, the sort of normal conflicts that are borne out in any nation of people are not able to happen under colonial overlord. It's sort of put on stasis, if not even aggravated, because all of a sudden, boom, your colonial overlord is out, and now you have this power vacuum. Who will fill that power? And then these regional factions within the nation will duke it out. And so that's why it's taken so long for so many of these post-colonial nations to so-called be developed or or have strong governments and successful economies. You know, all, all these things are in quotes is because of the effects, the sort of stasis, the sort of postponement of their maturation uh, of things that other countries that were free had the, the ability to do naturally within their own borders and within their own peoples to hash differences out. Uh, it, it sort of was born out of a power vacuum once the colonial overlord left, and then they've had to struggle to sort of adapt in the modern world. And so th- this is why this stuff matters. It's not just, oh, there was colonialism. It, you know, it directly affects to how the countries exist today and, and how the peoples govern themselves. But we'll fast forward now, just, you know, bullet points of the Afghanistan was under British colonial rule until after World War One, and then also remembering that India and Pakistan were formed after the UK pulled out of their colonial rule there after World War II. Let's go up to the 1980s, which, of course, really starts the modern conception of Afghanistan in probably most Americans' minds, if any, and that is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. The USSR invaded Afghanistan in the 1980s to prop up Afghanistan's communist regime. Remember, Cold War Capitalism versus communism, satellite powers, domino theory, all of that stuff. Soviets invade Afghanistan to try to prop up its communist regime. Of course, a lot of Afghans don't like being invaded by an outside territory. And so they 
revolt against some people revolt against the communist or the, the USSR being there among the groups that are revolting against them are called the Mujahideen they are supported by the United States of America this group of people fighting against the USSR rule they are supported by the United States of America. There's a famous photo of some Mujahideen leaders sitting in the Oval Office with President Ronald Reagan, of all people. The U.S. funded them, provided them intelligence, gave them weapons, because again, Cold War, U.S. thinks it has an interest to make it harder for the USSR to succeed in Afghanistan. The USSR, after 10 years, leaves Afghanistan. Its objectives are not really accomplished. Lots of people died, lots of money squandered. Not a successful war in Afghanistan by many accounts. What happens to the Mujahideen that the US funded for, for a decade? Well, the ironies of history, Matt. The Mujahideen, they splinter, there's interfighting, and out of them is born the Taliban. The Taliban were formed out of a group of people that the United States funded and supported. In the 1990s, the Taliban takes control of Afghanistan. They govern the country, and they start to harbor uh, al-Qaeda, which was formed by Osama bin Laden. He's, a, a, of course, he was born in Saudi Arabia, and he went around uh, the Middle East and parts of Africa and Sudan, and also in Afghanistan in the 80s, and eventually ended up forming al-Qaeda. For many reasons, the Taliban and al-Qaeda in some ways shared objectives, in some ways they did not, but long story short, the Taliban essentially allowed al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden to live in Afghanistan and for al-Qaeda to do their operations. It's not like the Taliban were al-Qaeda. It's not like the Taliban were the ones, they did not indeed, plan 9-11, that was al-Qaeda. But long story short, for us, why it matters to the United States is because the Taliban provided essentially safe harbor to al-Qaeda. And therefore, when Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda launches the 9-11 attack against the United States, in which you know four different planes uh, are hijacked and end up crashing into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and then um, a field in Pennsylvania, the U.S., is now has a, has a choice to make. What do we do about being attacked? And therefore, they intelligence points to Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda being behind this attack. And what do you know? Al-Qaeda is, is hiding in Afghanistan, which is controlled by the Taliban. What do we do? Well, we all know what happens in there. The Bush administration essentially invades Afghanistan, and here we are 20 years later with the U.S. withdrawing from Afghanistan and the Taliban retaking control. Matt, I want to play words, though, from the Bush administration. We might not remember these, especially the court of Americans who were born after 9-11, or, or even us who, who lived through it. Let's listen to President Bush's words himself in terms of what his ultimatum was for the Taliban. This was in a joint address to Congress September 20th, 2001, so a mere nine days after the attacks on 9-11, President Bush is speaking to the nation and telling both the United States and the world, and particularly the Taliban, what the United States demands from them. This is less than a two-minute clip. Let's hear the origins of the war in Afghanistan and what the Bush administration and the U.S. demanded from them. The United States respects the people of Afghanistan. 
After all, we are currently its largest source of humanitarian aid. But we condemn the Taliban regime. It is not only repressing its own people, it is threatening people everywhere by sponsoring and sheltering and supplying terrorists, by aiding and abetting murder. The Taliban regime is committing murder. And tonight, the United States of America makes the following demands on the Taliban. Deliver to United States authorities all the leaders of Al-Qaeda who hide in your land. Release all foreign nationals, including American citizens you have unjustly imprisoned. Protect foreign journalists, diplomats, and aid workers in your country. Close immediately and permanently every terrorist training camp in Afghanistan and hand over every terrorist and every person in their support structure to appropriate authorities. Give the United States full access to terrorist training camps so we can make sure they are no longer operating. These demands are not open to negotiation or discussion. The Taliban must act and act immediately. They will hand over the terrorists or they will share in their fate. Again, that's former President George Bush speaking to a joint session in Congress nine days after 9-11, making an ultimatum to the Taliban. Hand over access to the terrorist training camps so that we can start making terrorists. It's certainly, certainly some of the comments age well, some don't. So Bush is laying out there, Taliban, this is what you must do. You must hand over access to terrorist training camps so we can uh, make sure there's no terrorists in them and also uh, turn over al-Qaeda leaders, particularly Osama bin Laden. Of course, Matt, you can see there's already flaws in the plan here because if you're a terrorist, uh, the old saying, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, terrorists don't walk around wearing an ID badge saying, I am a terrorist, right? And so (laughs) to determine who are terrorists within a given country, pretty hard. What are the terrorist training camps? Some are probably more obvious than others, right? So um, it's hard to figure out, right? It's not like you're asking people, um, give us everyone, you know, hand over everyone whose date of birth is before this date and time. Great. Easy to prove and find out. Hand over your terrorists. Um, I don't know how you measure that objective or achieve that objective. I mean, there's no way that Bush wasn't going to send us to war. And so don't you think that perhaps his demands were purposefully uh, unmeetable in that regard? Yeah, I mean, the what ifs of history, right? And this is a fascinating time because this is a fulcrum point in history, a a major turning point. What would have happened to the world and the U.S. were our response to 9-11 different? And I am not an expert enough on the time, the zeitgeist, the thinking, the policymakers' decisions, the appetite in the American people. Again, I, I was a, a child, an adolescent. And so. I wasn't yet born. <laughs> right. Matt's, Matt's uh, Benjamin Button. Um, I'm not an expert on this, but so I don't know. And it seems to me like the appetite in the most of the U.S. was for, you know flexing our muscle for revenge for you know ensuring that this attack will never happen again something like that uh 
essentially all members of Congress supported the war. You know, you, you can know. hear it in that clip. Everybody's just waiting to start clapping. Well, actually, yeah, I should have mentioned that. I cut out multiple applause lines. So this is this is from a, a long speech, and as with any speech, like a joint session of Congress, the applause lines are after every other sentence <laughs> and last for a long time. So I should have mentioned that that I that I cut out three to four applause points uh, in there. So th- so there was applause throughout. But yeah, that's the ultimatum the United States made on the Taliban. Turn over your terrorists. <laughs> Turn over Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. This is non-negotiable. And the last point is particularly poignant. If you do not do this, you will share in the terrorists' fate. Meaning, I think, you will be um, at the other end of our rifle. You will be the subject of uh, our war. And indeed, that is what happened. The U.S. shortly thereafter, I believe in uh, October 20, uh, 2001, invaded Afghanistan and very quickly routed the Taliban regime. Uh, the, the Taliban sort of fled to the peripheries of the country, and so too did al-Qaeda. They fled for the most part. And the U.S., ever since then, had control of the country with their own sort of uh, branches of the Afghan government, a newly formed Afghan government. The problem, though, Matt, with, with the war in Afghanistan shortly after it started is that, you know, we achieved a military victory very quickly. When in the country, within a matter of one or two months, we ostensibly defeated the Taliban and drove out al-Qaeda from seats of power. The problem, though, is that how do you win this war? when you're fighting against really ideology and culture and lack of resources as opposed to having defined military objectives. Indeed, even if there's a clear military objective of saying the United States wants to get Osama bin Laden, we will not stop until we get him. Well, there's this famous moment in the war in Afghanistan with at so-called the battle, or not so-called, the Battle of Tora Bora, It was a place in southeastern Afghanistan, near the Pakistan border. There was intelligence that the United States had that that Osama bin Laden was here in these mountains in this area known as Tora Bora. The United States, for whatever reason, this is one of the big blunders of the war and of history, did not use its military might, did not press an attack, in the Battle of Tora Bora. Instead, it was sort of an Afghan security force who fought the battle, despite there being strong intelligence that Osama bin Laden was here. Osama bin Laden ended up being able to escape this battle, and then he fled probably into Pakistan, and of course he resided there, if not you know elsewhere, for the next 10 years, probably just in Pakistan for the next 10 years, until under the Obama administration they were able to take out Osama bin Laden. But this is one of the big blunders of the war where, okay, you know, here's this big strategic objective, right? You're, you're, it's not just go against terrorists, which is hard to define. It's let's go after Osama bin Laden. Here he was. The U.S. didn't act. Why didn't they act? A lot of people think it's because the Bush administration, there's evidence to support this, the Bush administration was already turning its attention to Iraq. Remember, the war in Afghanistan started two years before the war in Iraq, which was in 2003. They all blend together at this point. The United States had been essentially militarily victorious in Afghanistan up to this point. The war seemed kind of over in terms of overthrowing the Taliban and driving out al-Qaeda. 
the Bush administration, of course, the one of the most large blunders in American foreign policy, was already turning its attention to Iraq, having its uh, Sauron's eye fixed on the country, <laughs> uh, having intelligence, you know, focused there, planning troop deployments in Iraq, and therefore they thought, you know, w- w- why bother with this? Why bother de- deploy resources here in this this remote part of Afghanistan? Or was it their aim all along? Yeah, hard to know. George Bush is still alive. I guess someone could ask him. <laughs> I don't know if he would answer truthfully. But one of the big blunders of the war in Afghanistan could have gotten Osama bin Laden right at the start. Did not. Ostensibly Be- our aim for starting the war. Right. Instead, the U.S. has its eyes fixed on Iraq, which had uh, no weapons of mass destruction, of course, and had no role to play in the terrorist attack on 9-11. Of course, the rest is history from there. 2003, the U.S. invades Iraq. That happens for 10 years. <laughs> the U.S. pulls out. ISIS goes in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We go back in. Then we go back out. Right. So we're talking about the war in Afghanistan on evidence of design on 100.9 FM, WXIR in Rochester. Going through the history of the war in Afghanistan There's a lot here, of course. Books are written on this. The point I want to make is after the U.S.'s quick military victory, as you could call it, in Afghanistan in 2001, and after their failure to capture Osama bin Laden in 2001 at the Battle of Tora Bora, the U.S.'s role changes multiple times. It's from winning a conventional war to fighting a war on terror to nation-building to training Afghan security forces to fend for themselves. It changes multiple times, and depending on the administration's needs to placate the American people in Congress, it highlights one of those things over another. Whether it's fighting the war on terror, whether it's nation-building, whether it's training the Afghan security forces, whether it's winning a conventional war, it all is as morphous as it needs to be in order to placate the American people in Congress. And this is, I think, one of the main reasons why the war in Afghanistan will go down as largely unsuccessful is because what was the point? What was our clear military objective? And I think the reason why they were able to get away with it like this for so long is because, as you said, Jason, unless you or one of your close family family members was a service member... You didn't feel any of the effects of this war going on. There was no reason for you to be involved, invested, or even care about Afghanistan or Iraq. Nope. And we'll talk about that. Many reasons why the American people didn't have to care. want to play one last clip from the Bush administration, though. This is George Bush's words. Again, joint session to Congress, September 20th, 2001. Applause lines have been removed from the clip. Talking about the Bush administration's Uh, conception of how the war in Afghanistan will go, really the start of the so-called war on terror. Matt, it's interesting to note how President Bush, even here at the very start, says this war will be unlike any other, and it might be a messy one. It's interesting. A lot of people think that, you know, Bush said we're going to go in there, we're going to kick butt, and then we're going to get out. I think at times he did say that, but at other times too, as we'll hear in this clip, we were told from the start that this war might be a little dicey. Let's hear what George Bush had to say. A little less than two minutes. Let's go. Americans are asking, how will we fight and win this war? We will direct every resource at our command, every means of diplomacy, every tool of intelligence, every instrument of law enforcement, every financial influence, 
and every necessary weapon of war, to the disruption and to the defeat of the global terror network. Now, this war will not be like the war against Iraq a decade ago, with the decisive liberation of territory and a swift conclusion. It will not look like the air war above Kosovo two years ago, where no ground troops were used and not a single American was lost in combat. Our response involves far more than instant retaliation and isolated strikes. Americans should not expect one battle, but a lengthy campaign, unlike any other we have ever seen. It may include dramatic strikes visible on TV and covert operations, secret even in success. We will starve terrorists of funding, turn them one against another, drive them from place to place until there is no refuge or no rest. And we will pursue nations that provide aid or safe haven to terrorism. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. <laughs> uh, can President Bush say, I told you, Sean? <laughs> Former Bush, can he say, I told you so? <laughs> It'll be a long war, unlike any other. <laughs> I love the beginning of that clip where he's like, we're going to harness every resource to go after these guys. Not taxes, though. That's, <laughs> that's, that's out. Not taxes. Got to cut those taxes for the wealthy in businesses. <laughs> yeah, he also says we're going to deprive terrorists of the resources and drive them from place to place. Sounds a lot like what happened to us in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, at the start of the war, Bush administration saying it might not be like other wars, could be a long one. Uh, but, but to be fair, at other times he also said, you know, this will be uh, decisive, you know, in regard and we're going to kick butt and we're going <laughs> to, we're not going to be there forever, right? No president wants to say we're going to be there forever. It's all about moving the, moving the dice, moving the, uh, moving the guards. So, folks, we're talking about the war in Afghanistan on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Let's talk now, Matt, about some of the, those costs of the war. A lot of costs. 20 years, of course. Let's just start with the, with the monetary costs, although, of course, human lives are the most important, and we'll get, the, we'll get to those, of course. The monetary costs, though, Matt. 20 years of war, it's projected it will cost the United States over $2 trillion. That it has. That it has, yeah, and, and will because— um, This was financed on debt. Yes, so the war was financed on debt. I owe you. Not many Americans probably know that. We borrowed money to fight the war, and when you borrow money, it has interest on it because you have to pay it back. So Americans will be paying for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but we're just talking about Afghanistan here, not even talking about Iraq, just Afghanistan, $2.2 trillion. We will be paying for the war in Afghanistan for generations Until to come. Until all dead. Either due to climate change or, or yeah, our generation just dies out. <laughs> because it was financed on debt, and therefore it's gaining interest. And also, when you go to war, people get injured, physically and mentally. That costs a lot in health care. We'll be paying for the health care for the troops who fought in these wars for the rest of their lives. So wars cost a lot of money. And not just because the U.S. troops pull out, doesn't mean that the costs stop. Indeed, they go on. So as of now, $2.2 trillion with 
more to come. $2.2 trillion is a ridiculous sum that our brains cannot comprehend. If you break that down, that's $270 million a day over the past 20 years. Again, that's so large you still comprehend it. How about how much an hour? That's $11 million an hour. Still essentially impossible to comprehend. Matt, the federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. <laughs> The, the minimum wage for Afghanistan was, I guess, $11 million that the government was spending. It, it's just an exorbitant figure. It's exorbitant. To put that in perspective, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan has cost $2.2 trillion so far. The total student loan debt in, in the United States right now is $1.7 trillion. So in the money that we've spent in Afghanistan, we could have more than canceled every single person's student loan debt in the country right now. How about the infrastructure deal passed this week by the Senate? You know, that giant infrastructure package that's been quoted to say it's the biggest infrastructure spending in decades to repair America's dilapidated roads and bridges? That's $1.2 trillion. The war in Afghanistan has been double that. But think about how much safer we are now, Jason. You know, like, fighting a, uh, a pointless war for 20 years... $2.2 trillion, but peace of mind. No terrorists. Priceless. Ain't no terrorists, that's for sure. Because <laughs> we all know that you know terrorism was a direct threat to Americans' lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, the global terror <laughs> network. <laughs> the Illuminati. Which had, uh, had uh, uh, permeated all aspects of society in countries all over the world. Couldn't walk into Wegmans without being scared, you know. Um it's the sum is staggering and and the next time a politician says i, I don't know how to pay for something uh just remember that the war in afghanistan has cost essentially 11 million dollars an hour over the past 20 years just remember that we were sending like three million dollars a day to like provinces in afghanistan that we didn't even know what to do with yeah th these there is the, the afghanistan papers released 2019 right before covid 19 um <laughs> the People should read them if you haven't. They're kind of like the Pentagon Papers for Vietnam. The, again, the Afghanistan Papers. Google them. It's, uh, it, it's on the Washington Post. Yeah, Washington Post has covered it. Others have covered it. It's staggering. Um, villages in Afghanistan were getting $3 million that you know had tiny populations of people who were living in rock and mud and stone and stick huts that there's just no way to spend that money. <laughs> you know, it's just the infrastructure there isn't to spend that. It's, it's, it's astounding. Anyways, but the monetary cost of the war. In uh, the Korean War in the 1950s, President Harry Truman temporarily raised the top tax rates to 92% to pay for the Korean War. How about Vietnam? 60s. President Lyndon Johnson temporarily raised the top tax rates to 77% to pay for the war. How about the war in Afghanistan and Iraq? President Bush, 2000s, cut taxes for the wealthiest. Cut taxes by 8%. Ah. Uh. Yes, modern fiscal conservatism. Love it, dude. Neoliberalism, modern Republican economics. It's amazing. Debt-financed war. But also we shouldn't have gone to war. Yeah, debt-financed war. So uh, no economic sense to this. American people didn't have to care because they weren't paying for it. We literally weren't paying for it because it was debt-financed. We're going to be paying for it now. All the people who voted for this in Congress will be dead. <laughs> you know, it's like... Or are already. Yeah, or are already. And so the American generation will be, will be paying for this. 
it, it, it's obscene when you talk about the monetary cost. It's absolutely obscene. Next time someone tells you how do you pay for something like universal health care, $11 million per hour over the past 20 years for Afghanistan. But wait, Cutting taxes it gets worse because now we're going to talk about all the people we killed. <laughs> all the people who have died, yes. More than 2,400 American soldiers that were killed. More than 3,850 American contractors were killed. 21,000 Americans injured. 66,000 Afghan military and police killed. The Afghan, the Afghanis got shellacked. It's, it's awful. 47,250 Afghan civilians killed. 444 aid workers killed. 72 journalists killed. 52,000 Taliban and opposition fighters killed. Total deaths from the war estimated to be more than 240,000. That's 80 times those who were killed in the 9-11 attacks. 80 times. This is only in Afghanistan. This is not talking about Iraq. 80 times the amount of people killed in 9-11. I'd also like to point out that the numbers for uh, Americans are supposedly official in that we know with a certain degree of certainty that those are entirely accurate. The, the numbers for uh, Afghan civilians and military and police, those are estimates. Right. We don't actually know because, for one thing, we probably just don't prioritize Afghani people like we do our own. Um, and also just because so many of them were killed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you are a loved one, if you have a loved one who goes to war, they have dog tags, service IDs. You, you, no one just doesn't show back up. Like, hey, where'd, you know, where's Johnny? What happened to him? And, and the Pentagon's like, not sure, you know. I mean, I, you know, of course, tomb of unknown soldiers, all that. But yeah, it's heavily tracked because there should be accountability on our wars in terms of service members and lives cost. It's a lot different for a country like Afghanistan. We don't know how many folks were killed, and also, of course, the Pentagon tries to hide folks killed if they're civilians in particular, and they downplay the role. They either call civilians who were killed opposition fighters. So indeed, the civilian figures that we mentioned, forty-seven thousand, or might be a lot higher, and the opposition fighters killed fifty-two thousand might be a lot lower because civilians are often categorized as opposition fighters so that people don't turn against the war. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really funny how we found so many like uh, terrorist bases in like hospitals and orphanages and all that. Uh, yes, yes. Schools. So exorbitant monetary costs, exorbitant human lives costs. What were some of the successes in Afghanistan? Well, Osama bin Laden was killed. Supposedly. Um, <laughs> I, I believe he's dead. Some people don't. I, I remember talking to a, a, a Pakistani um, foreign exchange student in, in Rochester several years ago, and he was like, no, of course Osama bin Laden's still alive. The Americans are lying about that. You know, I, I, I'm not sure I share that view. I think he's, I think he was killed. Um, he, he was killed uh, in the Obama administration 10 years later when, uh, if acted upon by intelligence, he could have been seized at the Battle of Tora Bora. In a supposed ally in Pakistan. <laughs> That's where he was found. It's so messy with Pakistan. It's fascinating history, though. Um, also, some successes. Well, we, we set back al-Qaeda. You know, we're told by intelligence and the Pentagon that al-Qaeda essentially doesn't exist today. Biden, uh, as with any president, stretches the truth. Biden this week said al-Qaeda is gone. And some top Pentagon officials had to walk that back a bit and say, well, al-Qaeda... Al-Qaeda's capacities are not what they once were. <laughs> you know? We also set back the Taliban. Uh, yes, uh, for a bit. So Al-Qaeda is still out there, but they, their capacities are not what they once were. So how's that for a success metric? <laughs> um, some other successes, maybe 40% of Afghan girls can read now. 
there's a, a 50% decline in infant mortality, and many schools, hospitals, and uh, roads and bridges were constructed in Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, some successes from the war. Oh, boy. So, and, it's, and that is why we have to stay, to <laughs> secure the literacy rate for women, the lowered infant mortality rate, and all those schools and roads we built for people who don't own cars. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so, you know, obviously, Matt, you and I are, are against uh, the, the war in Afghanistan. On, on and women being able to read. <laughs> well, yeah, foremost, uh, first and foremost, of course, yeah, sarcasm. So, obviously, I was being facetious and sarcastic earlier when I was talking about uh, uh, literacy rates amongst women and stuff. Obviously, it's a good thing that something positive happened out of all this conflict. The thing is that that's now being justified as an excuse by a lot of members of the mainstream media as a reason why we have to stay in Afghanistan. And the thing is, is that that's not why we were there. That was never the reason why we were there. And our our leaving, uh, our staying there does not, how do I put this? We were there to defeat the terrorists, ostensibly. We, the, the only um, real sort of benefit that anybody can claim to have come out of this are the, the private military organizations and the defense contractors that have made a killing off of this war literally by you know killing people or, or at least the the profits that they've made off of the weapons that they've built you can be sort of sad or or, or scared or worried for the people who have been left behind in afghanistan and will likely uh, live under a repressive government as the taliban is but that doesn't mean that you know we are the answer for them or that we staying there would be to their ultimate benefit. Well said, Matt. Let's turn attention to the caller again. Hello, are you on the air? Hey, can you hear me? Oh, there it is. Sorry, I cool. apologize about hey. that. Thanks for giving us a call. What's on your mind? How's it going? This is Aaron from Queens. Just wanted to call in and uh, congratulate everybody on an excellent, successful war, 20 years, United States. We did it, though. The boys are coming home. This will go down in history as VA Day, Victory in Afghanistan Day. Uh, all I know is America never quits, America never loses, and I haven't been checking the news, but I do know that our troops are home now. Therefore, uh, we we won, right? That's it. Like, because, I mean, there's no way America would have quit. America doesn't lose wars, period. I, Aaron from Queens, I, I like how uh, there's been reports in the news, which you haven't read, which is okay, because why would you bother to read the news these days? But no, you know, no, yeah, why? It's depressing. <laughs> there's reports where uh, Biden was in the Situation Room or elsewhere, and you know, Pentagon commanders are coming up to him and trying to convince him to stay in Afghanistan. And he uh, he, he asked the Biden President Biden asks these commanders, so when will the Afghan security forces be able to take care of themselves. How long were all military need to be there to ensure the Taliban never comes back? And and they weren't right. able to give him an answer. And he's just like, well, well, we're going home then. <laughs> actually, that raises an interesting question that that's a bunch of neocons and their ilk have been bringing up. 
and I know there's not much time in the show left, but if you guys could just quickly address this, what do you say about the folks who are saying that, like, actually it would have been fine to keep troops in Afghanistan forever, just like we do in, uh, say, Japan and South Korea? Uh, there's obviously countries all over the world where there's American troops, including Germany. Uh, but if those are supposed forever wars, too, least you know the korea situation i think is a better example of that and there's no massive campaign to withdraw troops from there uh where do you see the comparison between that and the afghanistan situation do you think they have a valid point when they bring that up i i think they have a valid point if the if the american people think it's okay for the u.s to have military bases all over the world for the purpose of ostensibly providing for security and democracy so let's say the u.s government changed the goalposts and say you know we don't really care about the terrorists in afghanistan we just want our military bases there so we can keep iran in check so we can keep china in check we can keep the you know uh the russia in check uh, the russia <laughs> we can keep russia in check i don't personally agree with that but you know if the pentagon and, and the executive branch were actually honest about that to say, look, we're, we're never actually going to defeat terrorists, but it's in our national interest to have military bases in Afghanistan. There's also natural resources here. Great. You know, I think a lot of American people would go along with that. I don't agree with that, but that, I certainly see that as, uh, you know, if they're honest about it, that's one way out. The thing is that right. we... So, go ahead, Matt. Sorry. The thing is that we set up a democratic government in Afghanistan, and it ended up, ended up being like the most corrupt government that the people of Afghanistan have lived under <laughs> in generations. Like... There's reports of how the the money that we were using to build up the military was just being claimed by all these uh, shadow infantrymen who didn't actually exist, and it was given to the commanding officers under them. And how like the Afghan military, uh, the the U.S. backed Afghan military, had more generals in it than the U.S. Even though the U.S. military is eight times the size. Right, Aaron. We got right. twenty seconds. I've... Last thoughts from you. Sure. I'm... I mean, I agree. We, uh, according to uh, this one ranking, Afghanistan is 165th out of 180 countries in corruption. And if we had 20 years there, and that's all we could come up with, then, you know, not didn't do a good job. Yeah, <laughs> free market capitalism did its job in Afghanistan in terms of right. <laughs> let the money follow where it goes. Aaron, thanks for giving us a call. Take care. Thank you. Folks, that has to do it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM, WXAR in Rochester. Our thoughts go out there to everyone who have, uh, everyone in the Afghanistan situation. Uh, You know, awful, awful stuff, human lives, monetary costs, and and culture and everything. It's uh, it's really terrible. And um, Matt, I for one am glad it's over. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's over. Folks, be well out there. Be well, be safe, take care, and bye-bye.